to Minute 76 of The Great Escape Minute, the daily podcast where we dig into The Great Escape one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me this week is Nick Rehack of French Toast Sunday. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thank you for having me on, Rob. I very much appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, and and people should be happy to know that, that Nick is one of our few guests who's actually never seen the movie before uh, agreeing to be a part of the show. So we're hopefully going to get some really interesting thoughts from Nick as to what he thinks about this this movie when he's looking at it from virgin territory. Episode 76 begins with Hilt pondering and then deciding to take another slat and goes all the way till we see Colin inspecting a camera. So as we were discussing on Friday, Hilt was given the task of uh, collecting a lot of wooden slats from the various beds around the camp and from different places in order to help uh, shore up the tunnels, what they're working on, and he made a big pile. Now, Nick, we, we discussed this on Friday, but you weren't here on Friday, so you didn't hear the answer. So maybe I'll, I'll see if you actually have a similar answer. How many slats do you think are in that pile? Do you have any idea? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> if he had, oh, man. Um, I would say 12 stacks at three. Let's go with 36. Okay. There are, according to what I counted, I counted 75 slats. There are, I think, my I think goodness. there were three, three stacks of 25 or something like that. Yeah, it's crazy. It's way that higher. a lot. <laughs> I, I, before, before I it counted, is... I didn't know that either. You know, so you don't have to feel ashamed that, that, that you thought it was 36 because it doesn't look as if it's that much. But that's a hell of a lot of wood. I mean, obviously they need it. There's no question about that. But still, to, to go around and, and take that many slats from people's beds – uh, you know, I mean, we're we're gonna find out a little bit later in this in this episode what happens when when you don't have slats in your bed. Yeah. You know, so this this is somewhat it's it's an informative scene, but it's also a comical one the way that they do it, and it, it has a lot to do with the way that McQueen plays this character, especially in this scene. You know, he, he's given an, a scene all by himself where he's given a task, you know, of collecting these slats, and his just his facial expression. It's just great because he keeps looking back and forth. There's no one else around. You know, he's just pondering to himself, how many of these should I take? Should I take more? Should I take less? Who knows? And McQueen does a great job of this because he really makes us believe that his character is pondering these various decisions, which one wouldn't think are monumental decisions, but they're pretty important ones, especially since you need to shore up uh, three tunnels that you're digging. Especially if each tunnel is uh, what do they say, 330 feet? I think they said. Even though, even yeah. though we know that yeah, that's not the right number, that's a separate issue. We'll get to that this week, also. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll touch upon that that issue. Even even that. So think we're we're thinking at least a thousand feet of of uh, that you need to shore up wood. That's a hell of a lot of wood. I mean, I, I I'm you know maybe too bad too bad Jake Lewis is not here to to give us an engineer's perspective on how to. Uh, <laughs> you know, how, how much wood one would need in order to, to shore up 330-foot tunnel. I don't know. But, I mean, also these slats aren't, aren't too they're, – they're not too wide. I mean, they're long, but they're not wide. So, you know, even even if, if, if I counted right and there are 75 here, that's not really going to shore up that much. No, it's really not. And even though it does have the boards have the thickness to it, it's going to hold that weight sure so you won't need to have as many close together. You're still going to need a lot to cover all that footage. Yeah. So 
so he basically, you know, we see we see him deciding whether to take another one or not. You know, he like, takes one from the top bunk, and then he looks down at the and takes another one from the top bunk, and he puts them on the pile, and then like he's looking around and he decides to go back and and take another one, and you see like his eyes sort of pop out as he's lifting it up. He's like lifting it. I mean. The, the Olympics just happened, so you know maybe maybe McQueen <laughs> should have been in in the weightlifting competition or something like that, with the way that he's you know trying to make sure that he doesn't uh, throw out his back while he's lifting up these these seventy five slats. He does do it rather impressively, and he's just straight form. He shakes it first, but then he's just all right. I got it now. I'm good now. I'm comfortable. And one thing you did point out it's his eyes that pop out. He is so I've never really. I, I'm, I could be wrong, but I think this is the only film I've ever seen with Steve McQueen in it. Really? And his really, you've really, never seen, you've his never seen face, Bullet. You've never seen The Magnificent Seven. No. You've never no. seen. Oh, okay. All right. The then, original then Magnificent that's a lie. Seven. I seen okay. What else? Yeah. Uh, Towering Inferno. No, I haven't seen that oh, okay. one. All right. Well, uh, this is in my opinion. No. This is his best role. So, so you, you you started at at the right point. There's no question about that in my opinion. <laughs> His uh, his face though is so expressive, not in just this scene, but throughout the film. Like he's able to convey so much with just his eyes, and it really works too in scenes where you know he's in the cooler or he's out in the field. But especially in this one, there's like you said that determination. He's trying to figure this out, and then lifting that weight. It's that oh no, because he could have made a funny noise or a goofy thing, anything. But he kept it realistic. He's just like, oh, man, here we go. And then there's that realization of like, oh, no, here comes Cavendish. What do I do next? Right. Now, do, do you think these, that he's really carrying uh, stacks of wood here or is, are these the, like foam props? What do you think? I I think the – I don't know. It looks like at some point it's all foam prop and then after that it becomes a little loose. I'm sure the, it's not the same weight. Um, so I would say half is prop and the other half is real. Right. That, that would be my opinion also because when, when you see him taking the, the slats out from under the beds, they do look more real. You know, they look like they have a little bit of weight to them, especially yeah. when he's there's a them. There's oh. a coloration. Exactly. Yeah, there's a coloration. How these And you can see some of them kind of shift a little bit in lower portions of the pile. Right. So I wouldn't – so there's probably a base, and then he goes from there. Right. There might even be they, put fun little handles in there to help him pick it up. That could be too, because they probably don't want him throwing it at his back. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely That would not. be bad. <laughs> that would be very bad. Because then who's going to drive the motorcycles? <laughs> well, maybe they filmed those scenes already. You never know. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, fair point. They, they kept this scene for the for the final scene to 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 to, to film because this they're, afraid, they're afraid he's going to throw it at his back. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> he carries wood down the hallway. All right, and that's a picture wrap on McQueen, everybody. <laughs> well, especially since he, you know, it's, it's it's known that McQueen complained that he wasn't given enough to do in the movie. So, you know, they said, all right, let's just turn another scene. Uh, McQueen, why don't you come and pick up this wood? <laughs> <laughs> well, my character wouldn't pick up that much wood. I, you want to do it or do you not want to do it? That's true also. <laughs> Now, wait, before he even leaves the room, if you look around the room, it's amazing. Once again, I've, I've mentioned this numerous times, and I'm sure I'm going to mention this many other times throughout the rest of this 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 whole show. But the attention to detail is just unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, as he's leaving the room, you see that that on the side of this bunk bed there are pictures. You know, someone has 
put up pictures maybe of family members. They, they look like actually, I don't know, they look like belly dancers or something. I'm not really sure, but there are, there are pictures of at least three women in, in the shot there. Yeah. So The bottom one does look like a dancer or a ballet or something. Yeah. Or ballerina. Right. So it, it's, it's interesting to look at it from that perspective because this is something they could have just – you know, skipped over. They didn't need, need to put this type of detail in there, but it adds so much more layers to the sh- to the story to to add that because you, you know you see a jacket hanging there also, and you see someone's bag hanging uh, on the other side of the stove, and on the stove itself you have a frying pan and a little pot and a little coffee tin. You know, it just adds so much to the atmosphere that that this is a lived-in bunk. Yeah, and to a point where until you brought up the idea of prop wood, it didn't even dawn on me that it would be prop wood. It, I just thought they would have the wood stacked in piles, and he grabs it and picks it up. And then all of a sudden hits me, oh, yeah, that's right. This is a movie. So clearly some stuff is going to be foam or composite or it's not going to be that you know wood that it's supposed to be. Or some walls might not even be real. They might just have you know support beams behind them in a triangular shape holding them up. Right. So – that realism, yeah, absolutely, is there, and it just, it just, it, it, not that, it doesn't feel hollow and drab, like you said, it feels lived in, but it also feels like people have been there for a while too. Yeah, and even though we know, they I know the film been, touches been there on maybe it. two months at this point, you know, right? Maybe yeah. three months, you know. The, the, it's it's a little unclear when they get to the camp. I mean, in in real life, the the people were in the camp. the The whole process of the escape took a, about a year. But the the movie obviously I can see truncates that. the the real the real story from that perspective. Right. So you, it looks like they get there in mid to late spring, and you know the escape actually happens uh, later this week. We'll talk about when they, they they plan the dates, but it happens in the middle of the summer. So we're talking uh, three four months, give or take. There's also uh, back to what I was saying about the detail. You also see a tin can or a tin a yes. tin cup hanging on on the side of one of the bunks. So that could be someone's cup. Um, I noticed at some point, I think it was last week, that in Henley's room, on the side of his bed, there was there was a little tin that was used as an ashtray, you know, when he was smoking. So he was, like, putting his ash huh. in there. So this, this could just be another one like that also. You never know. I never thought of that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you could use it for anything, really. I mean, all of it's auxiliary. You can use it as something to drink out of, something to mix up, yeah. you know. Yeah, and the fact that they trust it, people not to take it, that's a good thing, too. You know. Yeah. As most of and us you know, know when what, you go away to boy camp, you got to hang on to everything. <laughs> you got to mark it with your name or put a little special engra- uh, engravement that only you know is there. Exactly, <laughs> so that later on you can say, oh, that's mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's like when I went to college, uh, I would open up the drive of my laptop and my Xbox, and under the underneath the side of the plastic, I would draw or I'd dig just a little N in there, just in case it ever went missing. And I saw it, I can go, "That's mine." They're like, "Hey, it's not." I'm like, "Open the drive and look at the bottom," and then you'd be able to see an initial on there and know it was. Me. And did that ever happen? It didn't, no, thankfully. Well, so and thankfully, none of my stuff was damaged from the mark. Right, I was going to say, so you marked it for nothing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it felt good. It was that you know reassurance. Yeah, peace of mind. Exactly, for sure, for sure. No, I'm just shocked that you're saying that. You know, when you went to college, there there were laptops. You know, <laughs> I guess I'm a little <laughs> bit older than you <laughs> from that perspective. But yeah, Hiltz basically leaves the room and starts walking down the corridor, and it, I I love the way that he's waddling down the corridor. 
you know, he can't see a damn thing. There's there's no way that he can see anything happening in front of him because he, he really has blocked himself off completely. But it even looks like he has raised the wood up a little bit more in this shot than it was in the previous shot. Did, did you... Did you, you know what I'm talking about? It does... It. I don't know if it's a perspective kind of thing, but it does look like he was trying to balance the wood under his chin, but then shifted so it was like resting on his chin. Right. Right, because he's putting so it does it, look like it is a bit higher. under there, but at this point it's a little higher. But we never we never see the transition where he actually lifts it up a little bit higher. You know, just to, I, I think maybe they wanted to make sure that he really couldn't see, so they said, "All right, raise it up a little higher." <laughs> Probably. We want you to be Probably. blind. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right, now you try to figure out how to let him by in the hallway. Exactly. And then, you know, we hear we hear a door open, and we hear uh, Cavendish come in, and, and I love what he says here. You know, he, he obviously, as as we recall, last week he was, he was outside caroling. So, you know, we see him actually come into the room after caroling, and he goes, bloody singing. I've never worked so hard in my life. Now... <laughs> that pretty much says so much about Cavendish being a slacker that that if singing is is something that's so difficult for him <laughs> to, you know that that he feels that that he's working hard by singing and he's also the choir master you know he's the one leading everyone in the singing so that's, that's a little strange also but i mean we we've, we've discussed many times about about Cavendish how he is the the foil of the entire movie you know, if there's a villain, it's Cavendish. He's the one who causes all the problems. So I, I think, you know, what, what's going to happen in this scene is sort of a, uh, you know, comeuppance for him, even though he hasn't done all the bad things yet. <laughs> this is like a preemptive upcoverance. Exactly. Exactly. And, and then he's walking by and he says, hi, Hiltz. So wait a second. How does he know Hiltz? Hiltz was never in any of the X meetings. Hiltz. Is, huh. you know, last week, Roger mentioned that I got a new guy to, to start finding more wood, you know, referring to Hiltz. So it, it's interesting that, that, that Cavendish knows who Hiltz is and Hiltz knows who Cavendish is. Unless it's you know. one of those random where we don't see it, but there there was a moment walking through camp like, yeah, hey, who's that guy? Oh, that's so-and-so, and then they just keep on walking by. Yeah, obviously, I'm, I'm assuming that that's what they're trying to convey here, but I just thought it was – I just think it's really funny that, you know, Roger just mentioned that I have a new guy collecting, you know, collecting wood for us, and Cavendish already knows who he is. Mm. So, you know, just – it works out well. And he just runs by him, you know, and – so McQueen does a nice job of, of moving out of the way so that he doesn't get all the wood knocked over. That I, that might have even been funnier if he knocked into him and, and all the wood fell down. It, it, but either way, I think it would have drawn a laugh. It definitely got a laugh out of me. But I think what's funny is he goes from I want to save myself and help this other person to I'm just going to save myself. And he keeps on going just so he doesn't have to worry about the wood. He's like, eh, Cavendish will figure it out. Yeah. More or less. And he's like trying to stop him. He says, see, Cavendish. And, or maybe he actually, maybe maybe Hiltz is clairvoyant and knows that Cavendish is the one who's going to screw everything up. So he's like, Ooh. you know what? <laughs> Let's give it to him. I mean, we, we had a theory when, when Jay was on the, in the second week, we had a theory about the fact that Cavendish is actually a time traveler that, that, that went back in time in order to, to make sure that the escape didn't happen. 
Interesting. Because part of his outfit is from the is is anachronistic and is from the fifties, or maybe it was from the late forties. I'm trying to remember when when we actually said it was. But the the bottom line is is that it was not some. It was not his uniform is or parts of his uniform is not something that that it was known in or that was used in 1943. So I guess we can actually even go back to that theory again. That here we go. <laughs> You know, Cavendish is back, or maybe Hiltz is, is the time traveler. And Hiltz knows. Because I think Hiltz, is, Hiltz has a watch on in this scene. I think he's got a watch on in this scene. Yes, he always has a watch yeah. on. Yeah. He's, so got, he's go. got a Rolex. There we go. Yeah. So you never know. Maybe that, that's the actual answer as to how that happened. That he knew what was going to happen. He knew that, that, that Cavendish deserved to get something, so he's like, all right. I'm gonna make sure that 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 he at least hurts before they kill him. Sorry for the spoiler. And he even gives him that look too when he's dipping the wood down and he's looking over like, hmm, it's those eyes again. He's just like, huh? Well, that's what you get. He's like, should I help Cavendish? Nah. <laughs> and right, hard his, pass. His battle dress. His battle dress is from 1949, so it is definitely an anachronistic. No question about that. Hmm. So you never know. <laughs> we'll we'll have to ponder that theory a little more. Maybe maybe it actually Absolutely. is true that there is some sort of time travel aspect of the Great Escape. <laughs> that would make it the even greater escape. That's true. That's true. So basically, what happens is, is that Cavendish then comes back into the room, and for anyone who remembers when Cavendish first chose his bunk, he wanted to make sure he had a top bunk. So he and he had a very interesting way of of getting into his bunk by jumping up and hanging onto the rafters and and lowering himself down or throwing himself down onto his bed. So he attempts to do the same thing again here and screams, "Alio!" He doesn't get the same response that he's had up until now because unfortunately, as we as we've just seen, Hilt took a few too many boards out of his bed. <laughs> and down he goes, taking all three beds with him. Mm. So you you think that at this point that now first of all he didn't notice that 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 Hiltz walked by with wood. Like where is that wood from? Yeah, it's not from yeah. Under the beds. <laughs> he's just so he, that's just who he is though. He's so self-absorbed. Like you said, he's the one that's going to jump. Ah, I got the top bunk. Haha, I'm just. Sorry, I'm busy. I'm doing my own thing. I'm so consumed with the work that I've been putting in, the work that I've been doing. And he didn't even really look at him when he's walking in the hallway. He just kind of eyes forward. And even when he walks past him, there's no, like, looking to the side to make sure I'm not bumping into your wood. It's just you need to make room for me. And then all of a sudden, there he goes. And then he's stuck looking around like, who did this to me? And it's like, you did this to me. How did this happen? (laughs) He's like... Before I traveled back in time, this didn't happen last time. Yeah. <laughs> Foiled. <laughs> Foiled again. I like that. His, his mustache always reminds me of the uh, – what, what, what was that uh, cartoon? Uh, Dastardly Dog or something like that? Oh, uh, Dick Dastardly? Dick, yeah, Dick Dastardly. So his mustache always reminds me of that. You know, it looks it, to me. It, I mean, I haven't seen Dick Dastardly in years, so I could be completely wrong. But in my in my memory, at least, it, it reminds me of that because it like has a little bit of a twirl at the end of the uh, you know at the end of his mustache. It's got uh, just the right amount. Goes, goes with the fact that he's possibly the villain here. Yeah. You never know. 
and so he's he's completely bewildered that this actually happened. He, he looks around, and then Hilt actually walks back into the room, because once again we can see we actually get a better shot of those three women on the doorpost, which is even more interesting. That maybe maybe this is like communal pictures for everybody, because it could it's, be. It's on the doorpost where people are walking out. So it's yeah. not it's not like it's you'd think if it if it belonged to the guy who was sleeping in the middle bunk, so he would put it on the wall next to his bunk so that he can, you know, look at his girlfriend, sister, his wife, wife, wives, whatever it is. But instead it's 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 here on the side of the wall for anyone walking in and out. Yeah, you as know, you like, leave because like there's like a like in Die Hard, you know, where where uh, McLean just, you know, kisses the 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 pictures as he's walking by. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 it's exactly like that. Because earlier in this minute, there's another picture uh, near a bunk that's second, so a middle bunk, and it's against the wall, but it's positioned to where it's right next to that bunk. So presumably when, you know, whoever's in that bunk goes to sleep, they can look over and there's that picture. But like you're saying, this one is on a door frame, so it's kind of for everybody to see. So maybe yeah. it's one of those like, you know, hey, this is Miss February, this is Miss January, this is Miss whoever yeah. it happens to be. The picture that you're referring to is is actually interesting. I, I didn't even notice it until you just mentioned it right now. It actually looks like a picture of a child. Hmm. Or buckwheat. Yeah, a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's buckwheat. Eddie Murphy. Possible. <laughs> Again, time travel. There you go. <laughs> I I love continuing to, with, with that. I'm, I guess we're going to have to do a special episode, the time travel aspects of, of The Great Escape. Yeah. That would be pretty fantastic because yeah. I would sure, love sure. – I'm sure there's a lot you could pull from in order to make that like a legitimate theory too. Yeah, that's true. I, I know Jay would Jay would join in for that for sure. <laughs> I, I'd probably get a few people who would be interested to do that. Maybe I'll do a bonus episode of that. Who knows? <laughs> there you go. So as I said, basically um, Hilt comes back into the room, and once again we see that the, the, the stack is lower because you can see his full head. And it's just like his head is, is, is cut off. It's like he, he has he has a you know he's the headless horseman where his head is just on top of the the, the <laughs> pile of, of wood there, and he he looks and, and sees what happened and basically goes uh never mind yeah <laughs> oh you figured looks, it out <laughs> <laughs> and Kevin and then he just like turns around and just walks away <laughs> he's like that eh, the hell with Kevin this. <laughs> and then uh, Cavendish is is quite in shock. As to what's going on, and we we, we get a little, uh, you know, a few moments of his eyes just looking around, trying to figure out what exactly happened to him. Maybe he bumped yeah, his head on the way down. Who did this to me? Exactly. <laughs> so I mean, it's a, it's a nice comical moment in the movie. That's one of the reasons why I like this movie because it takes a very dramatic and serious story, and it peppers in some humor along the way, and. And the humor doesn't take away from the fact that this is a serious movie, but what it does is it, it gives a little bit of, of levity along the way mm -hmm. because otherwise you, you would be really depressed watching this whole movie. Absolutely. You'd go from something like this to like a Dr. Zhivago where it's just dreary the whole time, exactly. and then you'd be kind of looking at your watch or pausing going, how much time do I have left? How much time do I have left? Whereas this is – like you said, it's peppered in there for just the right amount, and it, it gives you a little bit of hope because for for a film like this, 
surprisingly to me, there are some very tense moments in here where I was like, oh, like I, you know, genuinely worried for these characters. And I haven't felt that in a film for some time. So to have that from a film, what is this, 1963, for such an older, like, war film like this to still be able to build that tension, even with all those little fun moments, like, it's just a sign of good filmmaking. Yeah, no question about that. And so we pretty much finished that that scene, and we go to the next scene where we we see a room of a whole bunch of men working at tables. Henley walks into the room. You can see one of the guys standing at the window, you know, on guard to see who's coming in. You, you can see right away that Donald Pleasance uh, Blythe is sitting there also. So obviously this is the Forgers, and it looks as if they're in the library here. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think they said that they that they were working out of the library. And Henley sits down next to Blythe, and for anyone who remembers, last week we had the whole issue with uh, Henley and Werner, where he asked for a camera. Mm-hmm. And so basically, we get Henley sitting down, pulls something out of his pocket, and says to Colin, here's a present from our friend Werner. And hands him the, the, the camera. Now, for anyone who, who's seen this movie, so you know what eventually happens to Blythe, that he has trouble, you know, with his eyesight and stuff like that. But even if you're looking at the way he's right now working, yeah, that already is a telltale sign that there are there are possibly going to be some future problems. They're foreshadowing it here. I felt that too, especially after I had watched the movie in its entirety. I went back and focused on these particular minutes you had picked out, and as soon as I saw that, I went, "Aha!" Like they do, kind of briefly touch on that because he's getting that magnifying glass very close to that paperwork. It's not like your usual you're pulling it out further to magnify it. I mean, he's really getting in there almost as if it's uh what, what are the little jeweler's eyes where they're looking at diamonds and stuff, a little uh, teeny, yeah, almost like exactly. a monocle kind of thing. Yeah, right. he's he's using it like that when it should be, you know, very very different. So, I'm I'm glad you said that because it's definitely something that, you know, hit me as well. Right. And the coolest thing that that Sturgis does here or, or maybe it was uh, Danny Fapp, the, the cinematographer, that did it. You get a very quick close-up. You know, they they they, they zoom in onto mm-hmm. him. So you, you at first you can see that he's he's looking closely, but as soon as the zoom in goes, you can tell that it's even even you know that that, that he's even closer to the to the paper because we're yeah, getting it's... a closer shot of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, hey, here's what you should be focusing on right now. Here's what's yeah. going to be important later on. Exactly. And and uh, Colin gives his uh, typical response to everything. He says, splendid. Simply splendid. <laughs> and starts turning the camera around and around and around and around and starts saying, this should do very – and then that that is the end of the minute. But my first question is, is, okay, he's very happy that he brought him a camera, but isn't something missing from the camera? What I'm, do you usually I, need in order for a camera to work? I feel like a lens. Film. <laughs> it gives me oh, a camera. Oh, yeah. Oh, I see the lens there in that moment, but yeah, unless the, the film's already there. in there. Okay, but how many pictures can you get on a, on, a, on, on, you know, on one roll of film? Ooh, very true. Think about it. They have to make, they're making documents for 250 different escapees. He they does just kind of get the camera. Of, of film. He would need a, at least a carton's worth. Okay, there's the lens right there. I see it depending on yeah, the light. Yeah, the lens is there. That, that, and then he that. goes popping it open. So you would think as he popped open, like you would see the film or – I don't know. 
Maybe yeah, I mean, he's excited about the, the camera. They never, they never really discuss about the. I mean, it, they, when 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 Blythe told Henley earlier that he needed a camera, he says we need film, and he says of course. Mm-hmm. But here he's giving the camera. He's like, all right, knock yourself out with the camera. But you know, we're still working on the film. <laughs> could be. Very much could be. Yeah. So that's pretty much how this minute ends. Do you have anything else you wanted to add about this minute, Nick? Uh, no, I covered everything on my... Oh, you know what? One thing I did want to touch on. I don't know if you've touched on it in other minutes yet. Anytime they're singing, it's always Christmas music. Now, I know they're nowhere near Christmas during the film. Why? Do you know why they went with Christmas music? Do you know why they wouldn't just get them to sing, like, maybe, you know, nationally rousing, patriotic, anthemic songs like that? Like, why why Christmas music? Because even the guards, wouldn't they be confused? Right. So a few weeks ago, I, I did discuss this with one of our guests about the fact that they use Christmas music. We, we never came to a conclusion as to why specifically they chose Christmas music. Maybe it's just because of the universal aspect of it. Yeah. You know, I think I, okay. I don't think you know. There's there's what are they going to start singing uh, British military rah rah songs? I mean, this is this isn't Kwai, where you know. Have you have you seen the Bridge on the River Kwai? I started it. So oh, no. <laughs> wow, 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 Nick. Nick, I, I don't even think I'm going to have you back the rest of this week. <laughs> so that you know, they they have you know they're they're, they're whistling, they're they're whistling a, a a great song. There's no question about that. Uh, do you remember what the song is? Do oh yeah, it's uh, it's like Captain Sergeant something somebody or other. I'm I'm familiar with the whistle song though. Right, exactly. So, I mean, the, the words for that song, because this is a family-friendly show, I, I want to be able to actually say the, the real words for the uh, Colonel cur, cur, uh, Bogey March. That's what but, it is. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was basically they were they were making fun of uh, of Hitler in the song. Oh, okay. I, I did actually, not know that. Let's let's see if I can actually say it without uh, without going a little too. Uh, Okay, it's uh, all right. I, I don't think it's swearing, so I guess we can do it. It's uh, Hitler has only one, got one ball. Goring has two, but very small. Himmler is very similar, and Goebbels has no balls at all. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Oh wow! So, I had no, I had no idea that that was the thing. Those are, no, those are, I don't, I don't know if that's the original. Those are probably not the original lyrics, but those are the lyrics that that they would sing when they would when they would whistle that tune. So I don't know if that would be a good caroling song for them to do in the in in the camp. <laughs> you never wow. right know. <laughs> so, all right. Anything else you want to say about this minute? Uh, no, I'm. I think I'm all set. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so do you want to tell people how they can get in touch with you? Absolutely. You can find me on Twitter at the Rehack, T-H-E-R-E-H-A-K. Uh, if you head over to MixCloud.com, I do a radio show. It's called Rehack Radio, a new episode every Tuesday. It's about an hour long. Uh, it's just me, some fun facts, and some music. So check those out. All right. Excellent. And while you're doing that, you can go rate, review, and subscribe on any podcatcher that you might be using to listen to this show. You can join our Facebook group, The Cooler. You can send us an email, thegreatminute at gmail.com. 
Our website is thegreatescapeminute.com, and our Twitter account is greatescapemxm. So, uh, Nick, do you want to come back in tomorrow? Yeah, I'll be in After tomorrow. that. <laughs> Even though, maybe maybe between now and tomorrow you'll watch Bridge of the River Kwai. How's that? That sounds good to me. All right. Now, I'll give, I'll give, you, I'll give you at least till next week to, to watch it. You'll be good. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, until tomorrow, tally-ho. Tally-ho. Tally-ho.